Let's open the Word of God to the book of Isaiah. The book of the prophet Isaiah. The first of the major prophets stands at the head of the list of 17 books that close out the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah, the prophet. Last Lord's Day, we covered chapter 1. In the next number of minutes, we'll cover chapter 2. The second service will cover chapter 3. We'll use slides for the long list of things there that are nearly impossible to describe. And so a picture becomes much easier for me to show you what those things are listed at the end of chapter 3. But here we are as we enter chapter 2. Before we do it, let's remember that in chapter 1, Isaiah blasted Judah. Judah being the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, sometimes called the southern kingdom because they were in the south and the ten tribes were in the north. These tribes had been separated from the rest of the nation since the days of Rehoboam, about 176 years to the reign of Isaiah, king of Judah. Civil war had occurred after Rehoboam had not followed any of the wise advice his father had taught in the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. But in Isaiah chapter 1, after the introductory verse that simply introduces this book to us, Isaiah blasted the Jews. In 2 through 4, he blasted them for what a sinful nation they were and that they did not give him the rightful worship that they should have. Then... In verses 5 through 9, he describes the chastening that he had brought upon them, but it had been to no avail. And as I tried to show from Amos chapter 4, when ordinary chastening does not work, then the next time the Lord comes, it's going to be far more severe. And so it's implied that something far more severe is coming because it says in verse 5, why should you be stricken anymore? Why should I chasten you anymore with the ordinary things that I have brought, though they have basically reduced the nation to poverty in some ways, you haven't repented. In verses 10 through 15, he condemned them for their ceremonial religion. He condemned them for going to church on Sunday. Because going to church on Sunday can be done by anyone. And most of those that go to church on Sunday are reprobates to begin with. And so he condemns outward, ritualistic, ceremonial-type worship and says he, it stinks, he hates it, it's an abomination to him, he's tired of it all, he doesn't want anymore. He tells them in verses 16 through 20 to repent, that he is a fair God, and if they would repent, if they were willing and obedient, as verse 19 says, ye shall eat the good of the land. It's the R factor of repentance. Repentance is powerful with the God of heaven. Amen. When we truly repent and hate our sins and reform our lives and make restitution, there's three R's for you, make restitution of wrongs that we have done, the Lord forgives. In verses 21 through 24, he described backsliding. Notice, how is the faithful city become a harlot? Exclamation point. How had the faithful city of Jerusalem, the center of God's worship, become a prostitute? 
guilty of spiritual adultery. He describes her rulers as being rebellious and thieves in verse 23 and looking for bribes instead of being just administrators of justice. In verse 25 through 27, we have one of our little comforts, one little comfort of chapter 1. As you read Isaiah, look for the little interspersed comforts from God. They are fun to find, and they're very comforting to the soul, and they're exciting. Here, in verses 25 through 27, God said, I will turn my hand upon thee, and it's implied for good because of what he's about to do. I'm going to get rid of your dross. I'm going to take away all the cheap metal like tin. I'm going to restore judges like at the first under David and Solomon. And at the beginning, afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. This happened literally, actually, a couple hundred years later when God brought the Jews out of Babylon, restored them to Jerusalem, and blessed Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Jozadek, the high priest, Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, and others to rebuild that city with good judges, good leaders, good governors, good prophets, good priests. And it is certainly fulfilled in the New Testament church of today. And in verse 28, Isaiah the prophet went immediately back to the judgment that was coming upon the sinners in Judah. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. And that's the way that the chapter ends. Now chapter 2 is the beginning of a three-chapter lesson. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 are connected by the transitional verses ending and beginning the chapters it is not hard to see it. But the first verse here tells us that this is separate from chapter 1. Now, it could have been preached the next day. It could have been preached the next month or the next year, but it's separate because he introduces it with verse 1 that says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it is not a continuation of what was in chapter 1. It's a new vision or it's a new word to the Jews. So here we are at chapter 2. We will finish on time, so know that. I have purposed to not go as deeply in the book of Isaiah for reasons that I've given you. Let me give you a couple of them again. I do not want this series to take too long. There's too many other places in the Bible to preach as well. If we were to take as long with the 66 chapters of Isaiah as we did with the 16 of Romans or the 21 of John, I'll die before I finish. So I'm not going to do that. And second, Isaiah is not as important as Romans and John. Because the New Testament is more important than the Old Testament. It's built on better promises. It's a better covenant. It's a better everything. It has the Lord Jesus Christ as the object instead of Cyrus. Isaiah does see the Lord Jesus Christ, but not as much as we saw him in John. Could we get away from him in the Gospel of John? Never. Because that's the nature of the New Testament. So here we are at Isaiah chapter 2, the theme of the chapter. Jerusalem would be capital of Messiah's future kingdom. But he would destroy the sinners out of it 
first. That's the theme. The simple outline is an introduction in verse 1, the future glory of Messiah's kingdom in verses 2 through 5, Judah's sins that turned God against them in 6 through 9, terror on those sinners for their pride in verses 10 through 16, in verses 17 through 21, terror on sinners for their idolatry, and it concludes with a fabulous verse of Jehovah's total dominion over men. His total sovereignty over men. He is the potter and we are the clay. And that is the nicest thing he could possibly ever say about us because verse 22 doesn't even allow us to be clay. We're nothing. We can't even be accounted for. Cease ye from man. Those that love man, mankind, humankind, that worship the human spirit, Here's what God says about our race. Cease ye from man. Leave him alone. Don't put any trust in him. Don't put any hope in him. Cease ye from man. Get away from him whose breath is in his nostrils. Do you realize that each of you and I are so weak, so fragile, so impotent, that our entire existence depends on God drilling two holes in our face? If God hadn't drilled two holes in our face, we wouldn't even be able to live the next minute. Do you know that that means I can end your life with a clothespin? You can end my life with a clothespin. This is what the Bible says about us. Whose breath is in his nostrils. You squeeze this, it's all over. Amazing. I love the word of God. That puts us in our place. Whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? How will we make any accounting of the value or power of man? He has none. Especially in comparison to God. Especially in thinking of him as delivering us from God's judgment. Because that's what Isaiah 2 is about. If you love God's glory and majesty... For him to be exalted and man debased, you'll love Isaiah 2. Embrace the severe praise of God and his ridicule of sinners to realize that most of today's preachers are clueless. This is the God of the Bible. Do not allow effeminate images by men to enter your mind. That senile grandpa that Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is not God. That is a perverse, pagan, profane imagination of God. The God of Pope Frank and Joel Osteen is not even close to God of the Bible. The Almighty Jehovah that we've already introduced ourselves to. We do not need to wait to Isaiah 6 to get a vision of God. We can get a vision of God right now in Isaiah chapter 2. I hope you, I already gave you a vision of God in Nahum chapter 1 and Amos chapter 4. If you ever think for a minute that men, politicians, or nations, or military leaders get away with sin, return here to read Isaiah 2 from time to time. They do not get away with it. If you love the kingdom of God and its glory when Gentiles were brought in, you'll love the chapter. Think back to our detailed study of Paul's preaching trips and how he turned the world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
embrace the majestic language that's going to be used for our church and the gospel era of the New Testament. Flush the United Nations and their corruption of Isaiah 2.4. There's a statue outside the United Nations in New York City, and it has Isaiah 2.4 on it, chapter 2 and verse 4. They don't have a clue about it. They get no closer to the understanding of Isaiah 2.4 and the truth of the gospel than devil worshipers. It was a gift from the Soviet Union. God has visited planet Earth and set up a kingdom that will destroy all kingdoms. If you ever think for a minute that serving Jesus Christ is boring, you do not know him. You've never met him. And I'm sorry for you. If you've truly repented and submitted to him, then Isaiah chapter 2 is wonderful. Verse 1. It's the introduction to the lesson that extends from chapter 2 through chapter 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we know it's still Isaiah seeing what God wanted him to see, and that it was about Judah and Jerusalem. So it's about Judah, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple of God was that Solomon had built with David's fundraising efforts. The repetition here from Isaiah 1.1 indicates a new lesson. Isaiah early on warned Judah and Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar was coming. See, we saw that in chapter 1. Chapter 1 said, My ordinary chastening of you with Shishak, with Pekah, son of Remaliah, with the Israelites, with the Syrians, with the Edomites, that's not, gonna, that's not good enough. I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean. I'm going to bring the Babylonians, and they're going to destroy this place. And I will take you captive into Babylon for 70 years. You didn't like my Sabbath days. I will cause the land to rest for 70 years because you didn't want to give me one-seventh of your week. And so the Babylonian captivity runs for 70 years, and the day that it ends, Daniel chapter 9 70 weeks of years began to run of 490 years that took us to Messiah the Prince, right. the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the servant of Isaiah the prophet. And so we have a reminder here that we're going to get an extended view now of judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 1 told us that Nebuchadnezzar, didn't say Nebuchadnezzar, but that was implied the ordinary chastening is not working. I'm going to bring severe trouble on this nation and on this city. Let's go to verses 2 through 5. The future glory of Messiah's kingdom. This is how Isaiah writes. This is how other prophets write. In the middle of a condemnation for sin, in the middle of dealing with something else, up will pop a promise of the gospel. Up will pop a promise of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Up will pop a promise of us Gentiles worshiping. And so here let me read to you verses 2 through 5. They are wonderful verses. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. 
And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. amen and amen. It shall come to pass in the last days. Thank you, blessed God, for showing us the truth of your scriptures against the Zionism of the Jew lovers that do not understand the Bible. It is such a travesty that these wonderful promises are reduced to nothing. Absolutely nothing. If the capital of a kingdom is going to be Jerusalem in that wasteland called Israel, that little stretch of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, then it is no kingdom at all. If it's going to be an earthly throne for poor Jesus, it's no kingdom at all. If it's going to be a restoration of animal sacrifices, like C.I. Schofield and others teach, it is no kingdom at all, it is no gospel at all, it is no better covenant at all, it is worse. It is backsliding and a travesty of the truth of the gospel. These are wonderful verses of promise that took place and have been fulfilled for 2,000 years already. And we know that. But you cannot be waylaid by these verses. Some of us were raised in a system of religion, of dispensationalism, and a future millennial kingdom of the Jews, where they could have their altar again and offer animal sacrifices, and the Lord has saved us from that. And let me show you. But let's, I want you to be familiar with the verses. And right now it's verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days. The last days are the times of the gospel. Because that's how the Bible uses those words. The apostles lived in the last days. We're alive in the last days. In the last days, perilous times shall come. And so forth. It shall come to pass in the last days. For those of you that are interested in seeing the prophets line up with each other, Micah has the very same words. Remember Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, one of the minor prophets that was preaching at the same time. So in Micah chapter 4, he uses the same language in about five verses. It's just beautiful to see them uh, preaching the same thing. The last days are the final phase of God's kingdom as Gentiles become the majority. We know last days of the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ understood after the day of Pentecost. When Jacob used last days for the first time in the Bible in Genesis 49, he was prophesying of Jesus' reign through his fourth son named Judah because when Shiloh came, the, the scepter that had been part of Judah, Judah had been the tribe of the rulers of the sons of Jacob, would be fulfilled. Even, even Jacob knew that the last days were about the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle, called, the apostle called them the last days. When we go to the prophets, 
when we go to these 17 books of the Bible, and when we go to the book of Revelation, and when we go to God's prophets preaching, we must remember a lesson that they gave us. And uh, you need to turn to Hosea chapter 12 so that you can see this interpretation lesson or this lesson of Bible hermeneutics on how to study prophets because they spoke in a particular way that makes it a little trickier for us, but the Lord did it so that those that want to believe Jewish fables will have enough rope to hang themselves. That's, that's, why, that's one of the reasons he did it. The Lord is the author of confusion. Amen. He confounded men at the Tower of Babel, and he has confounded men ever since. He stops up ears and shuts up eyes. He sends strong delusion that men should believe a lie, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And one of the ways that confuses men is the way the Bible is written by the prophets. But here's what the prophets say. In Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10, God said, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Prophets used similitudes. Similitude is a long word for simile. A simile is a comparison that uses the words like or as to make a comparison. So it is not literal language. Prophets do not speak literally. Number one rule of Bible interpretation by C.I. Schofield, always take it literally. The Bible says don't take it literally because it's similitudes. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 says that the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass and sent and signified it, signified it by his servant John. So we have the word similitude, which is based on similes, comparisons. He is strong as a horse. That's got the word as in it. So if you start thinking about horses, you're going to get in trouble because we're talking about someone, some person, some man. And, and signification means that God has used signs instead of literal language. He signified it by his angel to his servant John. The book of Revelation is a book of symbols. It's not to be understood literally. And these poor people get into the book of Revelation and try to make everything literal. They'll get airplanes in there. They'll get tanks in there. I've seen that stuff since I was a little boy. And my father let me get into porn. The porn was books written by Hal Lindsey. Sorry, I didn't mean to waylay you there. I looked at all those cartoons and stuff of what was coming. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. He told us that the prophets used similitudes. Right. So Isaiah, when he makes some statements like we have right here in 2 through 5, about a mountain being exalted above other mountains, he doesn't mean that literally. That's, a, that's symbolism. For the little mountain called Zion and the little mountain called Moriah, two of the seven mountains of Jerusalem, being exalted and being the center of the earth. Because this is where all nations and all people would go to worship the God of glory. 
and it's spiritual Jerusalem. Jesus Christ left earthly Jerusalem in Matthew 23, and he left that temple in Matthew 23, right. never to return to it, and he said, behold, your, your house. When he started his ministry, he called it, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. He called it my father's house. But when he left it, he called it your house. Behold, I leave, left your house desolate. Right. And he desolated that nation. Let's go to the Bible to uh, two or three or four passages. I wish we did not have to turn. But I have to keep you established in the truth that these verses I just read to you, two through five, these verses are a description of the gospel era of the Lord Jesus Christ and the conversion of Gentiles and the setting up of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in this earth where the local churches of Jesus Christ are the outposts of that kingdom because that is what the New Testament teaches. Now, men that love Jewish fables will come back here and want to make that literal. And they'll want to see some mountain, you know, growing up and just getting higher and higher until poor little Zion, which isn't very big at all, is bigger than Mount Everest. Because they're all messed up with literalism, though we were told similitudes and significations. Let's go over to, to uh, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And the wise among you should know where I'm turning and where I might turn next. Acts chapter 15. What do we have going on in Acts chapter 15? We have the council at Jerusalem. What's the council at Jerusalem being held for? What's this big church council that justified God putting a chapter about it in the Bible? What, what's the event? What's the occurrence? The occurrence is Gentiles are being converted. That's people like you and me are believing on Jesus Christ and the Pharisees do not like it because they, they can't stand people that aren't circumcised. So they are going out and saying, convert, converted Pharisees. Converted Pharisees are going out and teaching that the converted Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas come down 300 miles from their home church at Antioch of Syria to Jerusalem to ask the apostles about it. And so a council is pulled together. Peter gets up and says, listen, it all started with me when I preached to the household of Cornelius. And he showed God's divine stamp of approval on that Gentile family and others being converted. Then Paul and Barnabas explained what God had done through them. And that's in verses 12, verse 12. And then James, a lead apostle at the church in Jerusalem, summarizes this way. And after they had held their peace, after Peter was quiet, Paul and Barnabas were quiet, James answered, saying, and this is one huge counsel. This is all the apostles and elders of the New Testament church. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's Peter, and that's he's talking about the event with Cornelius. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. He'll quote one. He's going to quote one. But this is what the prophets talked about. Gentile conversions. To this agree the words of the prophet, as it is written, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, 
upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And so James just summarizes the whole thing. You men should not be surprised by the household of Cornelius being converted. You should not be surprised that Paul and Barnabas have found so much success among the Gentiles and many of them being converted. This is the fulfillment of what the prophets told us. And do you know where one of those prophecies was? Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Because it mentions Gentiles, nations, and many people flowing to Jerusalem. Because they all wanted to hear from the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the transition of Jerusalem was taking place right now because this is the time of reformation. As Paul preached in Hebrews chapter 9, this was the 40 years of reformation, the old covenant being reformed to the new covenant, the old Jerusalem being deserted, then desolated, because we have a new Jerusalem, and it is spiritual Jerusalem, which is above, which is the mother of us all, Jews and Gentiles alike. Thank you, blessed God, for Acts 15. Amen. I love it. Amen. When uh, those that do not want to understand or are not able to understand, look at verse 16 and say, but it's in the future tense. Acts 15, 16. It's in the future tense, preacher. After this, I will return. This means after the United Nations sends up their cyclops with a glowing 666 in his forehead is what it means. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will. Look at the future tense. There's four future tense verbs in verse 16. But when you go back to Amos chapter 9 and verse 10, where that comes from, the future tense is the future tense of Amos in 700 B.C. It's not future tense to James because James says it is now present tense. It's happening right now, but he quoted Amos accurately by using the future tense of Amos. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. We shouldn't need much here. On these first verses, Lord, help everyone to understand, to see the glory of your messianic kingdom. And that the son of David was put on his throne when he ascended up into heaven and was crowned with glory and honor in your presence. When he took the book of the everlasting covenant out of your hand and sat down and you gave him the rod of iron rule and every, over, every overcomer gets to sit with him in his throne and is given that rod of iron rule as well. Why do you think the globe has no empires but 330 nations? because it's been dashed in pieces by the kingdom that's destroying the world, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It turned the world upside down, according to our enemies in the book of Acts. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews, what does the word mean? Can I give it a one-word synonym? Jews. Paul's writing Jews. Hebrews. When Paul wrote Jews, what did he offer them? a future kingdom on earth where we would be the water bearers and the wood cutters? No. Here's what he offered them. This is when Paul, and Paul knew more about the kingdom of God than anyone else because Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that. 
Here's what, he to, here's what he offered them. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now this is important. Did we have Mount Zion back there in Isaiah 2, 2 through 5? Did we have it back there? Okay. You've come to Mount Zion. Well, now listen. Anybody that went to Jerusalem was on Mount Zion and Mount Moriah because you couldn't get into Jerusalem without getting onto Mount Zion because Jerusalem was Mount Zion. Mount Zion was Jerusalem. So what does this mean? There's a spiritual Zion and there's a spiritual Jerusalem. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the, the, the earthly? No, the heavenly Jerusalem. They, 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote Jews, he did not tell them to be excited about earthly Jerusalem. He did not tell them there would be a restoration of earthly Jerusalem. He told them, ye are come. You're already there in a spiritual Jerusalem. Because the spiritual is far more important than the physical. Ye are come unto Mount Zion. And a, a mount, it's a mountain. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. Ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And listen to this description of the kingdom that we're a part of. And to an innumerable company of angels. That means there's so many angels they can't be numbered. To the general assembly. Yes, you're part of a mega church this morning. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Where's the membership rolls of this church? The book of life and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. That is what Paul gave Jews right there. The spiritual fulfillment of a spiritual kingdom of the gospel era of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 15. The Jews stood up. James was a Jew and stood up and said, this conversion of Gentiles is fulfilling what the prophets said about rebuilding the kingdom of David. We are members of the kingdom of David. David's son is sitting on his throne and is our king, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our king. He's been the king of a kingdom for 2,000 years. This church is an outpost of that kingdom. There are other outposts of that kingdom around the world. We have changed the nations because of the influence of Christianity. More on that in a moment. There's so many more verses that could be looked at by Paul's perspective on these things. Paul's perspective was better than anyone else's. Before I leave Hebrews, though, let's get what Paul said to Jews. This is Paul to Jews. This is as good as it gets, brethren. Do you know what he says as this goes on? Just a few more verses. This is the last kingdom. There is no other kingdom. You say, does it really say that there? Verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. That you are in the final kingdom right now. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Paul's just pulling, that's Deuteronomy in verse 29. He's pulling everything together and showing these Jews 
We have the fulfillment of everything God ever promised. We have the son of David on his throne. We have better promises, a better covenant, better blood, better sprinkling. We have eternal salvation. We have the rest promised for the people of God in Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath wasn't a real rest. Canaan wasn't a real rest. We have the real rest. Right. It's just powerful by Paul. Look at chapter, let's back, well, let's go ahead to, to chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 13. I want verse 14. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Look what Paul said about Jerusalem. Two Jews. Jerusalem on earth is not God's city. Heavenly Jerusalem is God's city. And we're looking forward to being in the most real place aspect of that when we're in heaven. Come back to 11. Abraham. When all the promises made to Abraham, what city was he looking for? Verse 16. Now they desire a better country. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not want the sand wasteland at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. They want a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Verse 10, Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Earthly Jerusalem wasn't built by God. Earthly Jerusalem was built by the Jebusites. Joab and David took it from the Jebusites. It was called Jebus. There is another Jerusalem that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob looked for. And we're members of it. Back to Isaiah. There's many other places that we could go to. And we've been to them before. I just want you to look at those verses. And now let's just, let me, let me just comment on them briefly so that we can move into the rest of this passage. Notice that Paul said, you're coming to Mount Zion. He called it a mountain. We're not in a mountain right now. I mean, I guess we could move to top of Paris Mountain. That wouldn't be much of a mountain. You know, what mountain are we on right now? We're on the spiritual Mount Zion that the Bible's always intended, even from the days of Abraham. And the city of Jerusalem? It's the spiritual city of Jerusalem. It's the heavenly city of Jerusalem. You say, well, it's, it's not really a city. God calls it a city. Is that not good enough for you? He's using a similitude. Remember a similitude? If I say he's as strong as a horse, am I really wanting to get off on a discussion about horses? Or am I saying he's strong? If I say that the New Testament church and the New Testament kingdom can be called Mount Zion... Do you want to get off in some geographics, ge geography study of Mount Zion over there in Israel? Or are you realizing that God's using symbols from Old Testament worship and exalting them above all other mountains until it changes the earth? Watch. It shall come to pass in the last days. This is after the exile and return from Babylon and the Lord Jesus Christ comes that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Is, the church, is, is a Baptist church the house of God? Amen. In the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. When did all nations begin flowing 
to the church of Jesus Christ in the days of the apostles, which is what I just showed you in Acts 15 with the council at Jerusalem. And many people, that's those aren't Jews. These are other kinds of people, Gentiles. Many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. Did a man of Macedonia say to the apostle Paul in a vision, come over into Macedonia and help us. And so Paul realized that God was calling him to leave Asia. And he went into Europe to preach the gospel in Greece. And he kept going west. And so we have the gospel ourselves here in the west. Thank you, Lord. And yes, Titus was in Dalmatia. We love thinking about you guys. When we get to the travels of Paul, you've been to places where Paul was and we haven't. We can just read about it. Many people shall go and say, let's go learn the true religion. He'll teach us his ways. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What went out of Jerusalem? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth 2,000 years ago. And you go to Acts chapter 13, when Paul preached his first sermon that's recorded in the Bible in Antioch of Pisidia, across the Mediterranean, modern-day Turkey, when Paul preached his first sermon, the next Sabbath day, the whole city came to hear him of Gentiles, and the Jews were envious because all the Gentiles had come to hear this man preach that Messiah was already on his throne. And it says the Gentiles rejoiced when they heard it. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Tremendous conversions. Just like this is describing. They came, the whole city came together to hear whatever Paul would tell them. Cornelius of the Italian band. The minute he met Peter, I was told by an angel to go get you. And now that you're here, you've done well. But we are all here present to hear whatsoever God hath commanded you for us. Exact fulfillment. Tremendous. And he shall... The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the gospel went out of Jerusalem. And for 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side from 30 A.D., when Jesus Christ died, rose again, went into heaven until 70 A.D. when Titus and the Roman legions leveled that city to the ground and you couldn't even tell it had ever been inhabited according to eyewitness accounts. And that city was over, completely over. And now the Gentiles and the Jews were in local churches, part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That isn't describing universal peace. You say, it sounds like universal peace. That's what happens to those that believe in Jewish fables. Because it sounds like it. We don't want the sound of a verse. We want the sense of a verse. This is talking about Gentile conversions. Was there a peaceful influence on the world because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because of the Prince of Peace. Why didn't Elizabeth and those that were with her take up arms against the Catholic Church? Because the Prince of Peace called us to live peacefully in this world. As much as, here's his order from our King. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. 
The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Look at this church. Do we have different nationalities here? Ethnicities? Backgrounds of all kinds? Do we all love each other? Beautiful. The wolf with the lamb is sitting in the church of Greenville. I'll be the wolf, comes naturally, and you're the lamb. But here we are. The Lord's brought us all together. Just beautiful. You know, Soviet Union, United Nations, pulls verse 4 out, slams it on a statue, think that the United Nations is accomplishing that. Uh, they look, they're looking for universal peace, but has there been universal peace the way they define it? Not even close. But has Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, brought peace and good tidings on earth? And we're, all, we're blood brothers. The Apostle Paul was warmly embraced. The Jews were despised in the world, but the Apostle Paul was warmly embraced by Gentiles wherever he went. Remember when he was in Italy, going up the boot of Italy, and they came as far, far as Appia Forum and the three taverns to meet him, and he was encouraged? Do good to all. Here's another order from our king. Do good to all men, especially they of the household of faith. Who are the most, pe the most peaceful nations? Are the most Christian nations. You know, today it's hard to find a very Christian nation, so it's hard to find a lot of peace. But everyone, everyone wanted to come to America, and everyone wants to come to America because it's a great peaceful place to live because it has been a Christian nation. There's so much more that could be said, but we have a lot of ground to cover in just a few minutes. So let's go with the rest of this. Chapter 2, we covered the comfort that is going to come in the last days. That was way in the future. In Isaiah 2, 3, and 4, Isaiah has a 700-year view of world history. He's looking ahead 700 years because he's in 700, 650 B.C. So he's looking ahead and he's seeing the conversion of the Gentiles and all the nations flowing to the kingdom of God's house and God's worship. Okay, so he, so he, he sees that mountaintop way out there, but there's another mountaintop in between that he introduced in chapter 1, and that's the captivity in Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar coming. And so now he turns right his attention right back, as he is so prone to do, he turns his attention back to what are the sins of these people in front of me and what is God going to do to them before the last days. Are you with This is chapter 2. He's going to list their sins, and then he's going to tell them of the terror he's going to bring on them. Because notice the offer he made in verse 5. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Why do I have to tell you about all nations flowing to Mount Zion and flowing to Jerusalem? What about you? What about you? The message went to you first. I'm bringing it. House of Jacob. Therefore, because this message doesn't find any lodging place with you, therefore, because you want to have your little pet sins, I will crush you in the day of the Lord. Here we go. 
verses 6 through 9. There is much more that was not said that is in an outline that will be posted in the next 24 hours. Verses 6 through 9, Judah's sins that turned God against them. Therefore, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. Notice Isaiah is telling his audience that God, the God of the great blessings of 2 through 5, had forsaken the house of Jacob because they didn't want that spiritual blessing of pure worship, of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Therefore, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. Three reasons given here. Number one, because they be replenished from the east. Their religion is made up of a a bunch of eastern religions, of the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Babylonians. And you can find evidence of it throughout the prophets. They looked to the east for their religions. Prognosticators and sorcery and witchcraft. So that, number two, they have become soothsayers like the Philistines, which were identified as a local nation that practiced witchcraft. And three, they pleased themselves by marrying the children of pagan strangers. They pleased themselves in the children of strangers. They are intermarrying with pagans. They've become soothsayers like the Philistines because they've embraced the religions of the East. Their land also, here's, a, here's more, further sins. Their land also is full of silver and gold. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, there was great prosperity. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. So they have put a great deal of emphasis on financial prosperity and military strength. In verse 7, they've got religious problems in 6, affinity problems in 6 of marrying the wrong people. They've got prosperity and military problems in 7, verse 8. Their land also is full of idols. They've got a problem with idolatry. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down. That's the average person, low-class men. Mean, in arithmetic, means the average. And the great man, rich man, successful man, landlord, humbleth himself down to these idols. Look at this preacher. Look at this preacher in his words. Therefore, forgive them not. Therefore, forgive them not. Sometimes when things come out of my mouth that you think are too harsh, remember Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Therefore, thou hast forsaken them, don't forgive them. Two Fs. Thou hast forsaken them, don't forgive them, because of those kind of sins in the face of these kind of promises. Because with these kind of promises, we should be wanting to serve the Lord. And so there's the list of sins. Now the terror that's going to come from the Lord in verse 10 because of their pride. Terror on sinners for their pride. Here's the prophet. Here's how he preached. And he's mocking them. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. 
and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. So in verses 10 through 16, we have seven verses of the terror God is going to bring on the sinners of Judah, the Jewish sinners, for their arrogance, their pride, their conceit, and their haughty living. We had the sins listed in verses 6 through 9 of religious problems in 6, financial and military confidence in verse 7, idolatry in 8, and that all classes of society were worshiping those idols in verse 9. That's a list of the sins. Now this particular thing he's going after now, you are living that way, contrary to my form of religion, though I made you the offer of verses 2 through 5. And that offer is made all the way from the beginning of the Bible. See, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob promised Isaiah 2 in, uh, in Genesis 49. Balaam promised it in his prophecies about Israel. It's been known all the way through. God told Moses to tell Israel, you know, they don't want to worship me. They want some man to come between me and them. Well, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, and uh, he'll speak to them. Jesus Christ was in Deuteronomy 18. What does it take to worship idols and to take confidence in finances and military strength against the God of glory when you've been taught all about him? It is arrogance. It is pride. And so what is the word of the Lord? Go try to hide from me. Go try to find a cave that will protect you from me. Why don't you try going underground and see if you can be saved from me? For fear of the Lord, and this isn't the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. This is the fear of the Lord of terror on these people. And for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth and to crush all the arrogance of the Jews that rebelled against him. The lofty looks of man are going to be brought down. Haughty men are going to be bowed down. There's going to be one exalted in that day. God could not stand the fact that they would give honor to a little graven image, to something they made with their fingers and made with their hands. When he is the God of glory, he created them. He couldn't stand it. And so the arrogance of it and the haughtiness of it that they thought that they could make something that they wanted to put on their shelf and on the mantle over their fireplace and bow to and put food in front of it as an idol. And the arrogance of the thought, the glory of his majesty, is his jealousy for his sovereign power. And he was going to crush them with it. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one of them in verse 12. The cedars of Lebanon were glorious trees, and so were the oaks of Bashan. And these men were high and lifted up and haughty in their religious ideas, like these trees were among the trees of the forest. And so with the high hills in verse 14. They're similitudes. They're similitudes. They're similes. They're metaphors for the men, the wicked men. And upon every high tower, they thought their fenced cities could protect them from God's vengeance. Their fenced cities didn't protect them from Sennacherib, didn't protect them from the ten tribes, didn't protect them from Syria. 
and it wouldn't protect them from Nebuchadnezzar. And upon all the ships of Tarshish, they had navies to go get them cash and gold and silver from Tarshish so that they could hire foreign armies. Listen, the Lord is just going right down through the list of where they put their confidence. Do you ever read, ever read about Jehoshaphat once wanting to get involved with Ahab and build navies to go to Tarshish to bring, bring, bring riches? And the Lord wrecked that navy? Well, here's another example of it. And upon all the ships of Tarshish, there is going to be no rescue for you by the navy of Tarshish. And upon all pleasant pictures, that is decorative decor of their houses and fancy things that they delighted in that were of great value that they took confidence in because they had beautiful homes with wall hangings of riches, decorative collectibles. He's just listing... Listen, you know, you know in Isaiah chapter 3, is he going to go through most things that a woman wears? Mm -hmm. he, he, can get, he can build a pretty long list, and he's building one right here. And so it ends with, and pleasant pictures of collectible items in their homes. He runs, he runs the gamut from verse 6 down through verse 16 of their sins, but he is going to bring them down for the glory of his majesty. Majesty is the sovereign reign of a king. And glory is the jealousy that he has for that authority. And the glory of his majesty, he's going to crush them. Verse 17, we come to the next section. Here in its terror on sinners for their idolatry. Now he focuses on their idolatry. In this section, he has focused on their lofty looks. In verse 11, the lofty looks, the haughtiness shall be bowed down. In verse 12, upon everyone that is proud and lofty, upon everyone that is lifted up, he can't stand any arrogance. Are we all willing to be servants of each other? Servants. Servants of servants. No one in here should think that they are special. I am your servant. You know what I, I am to you. I am Balaam's transportation to you. Spur me. Now it's idolatry. Verse 17, And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. That's the same as verse 11. But it's going to have a different list following it of their sins. It's still arrogance, but it's arrogance that's been transferred to idols. Verse 18, And the idols he shall utterly abolish. God will utterly abolish idols. They didn't need to melt on the mantle. All that needed to happen was Nebuchadnezzar enters the city of Jerusalem and takes the city, and they know that that little god on the mantle didn't do them any good. He will abolish idolatry by crushing all those that trusted in another god except him. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks. Now it's they shall go. See, back there in verse 10, it was... Why don't you go into the rocks? Why don't you try to hide? And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and in the caves of the earth. They're going to be looking for safety anywhere they can find it. Jesus spoke this very same language about the destruction of Jerusalem when he was on the way to Calvary and the women said, were weeping for him. And he said, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because a day is coming very soon when they're going to beg for the mountains to fall on them. And John uses the very same language in Revelation chapter 6. 
when Jesus Christ comes to judge this earth, they're going to be begging for the mountains to fall on them. This is prophetic, symbolic language. Nobody's going to say, Mount Everest, please drop on me. It's symbolic. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty. This is three times when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And this arising to shake terribly the earth is what Isaiah saw in 650 B.C. And it's Nebuchadnezzar coming with the Chaldean army to overthrow the Jews. Their temple will be destroyed. Their city will be destroyed. Most of them will be killed. Their wives will be raped. That is specifically identified and listed, and you'll need that for the second service. Their wives will be raped. Their fields will be plundered. All their assets taken. They will be bound up, and they'll make a 500-mile march to Babylon. When he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. See, literalists, want, want, this is how deep they think. This is how childish they are when they come to a Bible. Oh, wow. He shook the earth. We have so many examples of that language being used for, let's see, how do we use it? Oh, my whole life got shook up today. No, you probably had two bad events and they were both small. And you said, the, whole, the world got turned upside down. No, it didn't. Why do people say that? It's a figure of speech. This is a figure of speech. When he arises to shake terribly the earth, it's going to be Nebuchadnezzar coming to, to kill these idolaters in Judah. In that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. I love that. Moles and bats. This is Isaiah's preaching. This is, this is pulpit manner 101 from Isaiah the preacher. Moles and bats. They're going to throw their idols to the vermin. Vermin that feeds on dead flesh. Carries diseases. Moles and bats. I hope there's no one in here with a mole or a bat for a pet. <laughs> to go into the clefts of the rocks. They're going to throw their gods away. And they're going to be running for safety. And to the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord. And for the glory of His majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. God sits back. He says in Psalm 50, because I'm so quiet, you think that I'm like you and that I approve of your sins. But get one thing straight. I am going to tear you in pieces for thinking that about me. It's Psalm 50, the last three verses. And it's right here as well. When he ariseth. God is long-suffering. My brethren, every one of you that can hear my voice right now, God is long-suffering, merciful, and patient. If you have been compromising in any part of your life, He has brought you to today so that you can hear Isaiah 2 and repent. If you do not repent, it will be harder to repent the next time, and your conviction the next time will probably be less. And when he ariseth in your life, it will be terrible. He knows your worst fears worse than you know them, better than you know them. Cease ye from man. 
Don't look to the Egyptians or the Assyrians for help. Don't look anywhere for help. Don't look to those false prophets. Don't look to your parents. Don't look to your husband. Don't look to the priest. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? He, there can't even be a reckoning made for man. There is no defense when God ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And Jesus Christ is coming soon to shake terribly the earth and to burn it up. He is going to descend from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a warning to them. It becomes a warning to us. We aren't living then. We're living now. Don't put any trust in man. Don't put any trust in what man puts his trust in. Put your trust only in the Lord. Man can be shut off by closing the two holes, the nostrils, whose breath is in his nostrils. Wherein is he to be accounted of? He is nothing. Men of low degree, surely men of low degree are a lie. Low class men are obviously vanity. This is Psalm 62 and verse 9. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. That is upper class men that think they're something special. They're a lie because actually they're just like men of low degree. Putting them together in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Psalm 62 and verse 9. Now that's pretty light when you take low class men, upper class men, put them together and put them in the scales and they're lighter than vanity. They go up and vanity, which is nothing, goes down because it's so heavy. That's Psalm 62 and verse 9. Isaiah 40 would put it this way. They are a drop of the bucket, meaning they are the moisture in a bucket that is ignored when you're weighing liquid. They are the dust of the balance. They are dust, the fine dust that is on a balance that is ignored because it cannot affect the measure. In one verse, wherein is he to be accounted of? He is immaterial. He is irrelevant. He is nothing. And I love the God that speaks that way about me. He is everything, and we should give him everything. He has made his son everything, and we should give his son everything. This is Isaiah 2. This is how God's ministers preach This is the great glory and majesty of God. We are in the first five verses. Will you stay in the first five verses by obedience to His New Testament rules? Because He judged churches in the New Testament so that the cemetery at the church at Corinth had stone after stone after stone of disobedient church members. And our Lord is coming. Let's be ready for Him. What a great God we worship. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Judah. Let's open the Word of God to the book of Isaiah. The book of the prophet Isaiah. The first of the major prophets stands at the head of the list of 17 books that close out the Old Testament Scriptures. Isaiah the prophet. Last Lord's Day, we covered chapter 1. 
In the next number of minutes, we'll cover chapter two. The second service will cover chapter three. We'll use slides for the long list of things there that are nearly impossible to describe. And so a picture becomes much easier for me to show you what those things are listed at the end of chapter three. But here we are as we enter chapter two. Before we do it, let's remember that in chapter one, Isaiah blasted Judah. Judah being the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, sometimes called the southern kingdom because they were in the south and the ten tribes were in the north. These tribes had been separated from the rest of the nation since the days of Rehoboam, about 176 years to the reign of Isaiah, king of Judah. Civil war had occurred after Rehoboam had not followed any of the wise advice his father had taught in the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. But in Isaiah chapter 1, after the introductory verse that simply introduces this book to us, Isaiah blasted the Jews. In 2 through 4, he blasted them for what a sinful nation they were and that they did not give him the rightful worship that they should have. Then... In verses 5 through 9, he describes the chastening that he had brought upon them, but it had been to no avail. And as I tried to show from Amos chapter 4, when ordinary chastening does not work, then the next time the Lord comes, it's going to be far more severe. And so it's implied that something far more severe is coming because it says in verse 5, why should you be stricken anymore? Why should I chasten you anymore with the ordinary things that I have brought, though they have basically reduced the nation to poverty in some ways, you haven't repented. In verses 10 through 15, he condemned them for their ceremonial religion. He condemned them for going to church on Sunday. Because going to church on Sunday can be done by anyone. And most of those that go to church on Sunday are reprobates to begin with. And so he condemns outward, ritualistic, ceremonial-type worship and says it stinks, he hates it, it's an abomination to him, he's tired of it all, he doesn't want anymore. He tells them in verses 16 through 20 to repent, that he is a fair God, and if they would repent, if they were willing and obedient, as verse 19 says, ye shall eat the good of the land. It's the R factor of repentance. Repentance is powerful with the God of heaven. When we truly repent and hate our sins and reform our lives and make restitution, there's three R's for you, make restitution of wrongs that we have done, the Lord forgives. In verses 21 through 24, he described backsliding. Notice, how is the faithful city become a harlot? Exclamation point. How had the faithful city of Jerusalem, the center of God's worship, become a prostitute, guilty of spiritual adultery? He describes her rulers as being rebellious and thieves in verse 23 and looking for bribes instead of being just administrators of justice. In verse 25 through 27, we have one of our little comforts, one little comfort of chapter 1. As you read Isaiah, look 
for the little interspersed comforts from God. They are fun to find. And they're very comforting to the soul. And they're exciting. Here, in verses 25 through 27, God said, I will turn my hand upon thee, and it's implied for good because of what he's about to do. I'm going to get rid of your dross. I'm going to take away all the cheap metal like tin. I'm going to restore judges like at the first under David and Solomon. And at the beginning, afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. This happened literally, actually, a couple hundred years later when God brought the Jews out of Babylon, restored them to Jerusalem, and blessed Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Jozadek, the high priest, Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, and others to rebuild that city with good judges, good leaders, good governors, good prophets, good priests. And it is certainly fulfilled in the New Testament church of today. And in verse 28, Isaiah the prophet went immediately back to the judgment that was coming upon the sinners in Judah. And the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. And that's the way that the chapter ends. Now chapter 2 is the beginning of a three-chapter lesson. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 are connected by the transitional verses ending and beginning the chapters. It is not hard to see it. But the first verse here tells us that this is separate from chapter 1. Now it could have been preached the next day. It could have been preached the next month or the next year. But it's separate because he introduces it with verse 1 that says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem it is not a continuation of what was in chapter 1. It's a new vision, or it's a new word to the Jews. So here we are at chapter 2. We will finish on time, so know that. I have purposed to not go as deeply in the book of Isaiah for reasons that I've given you. Let me give you a couple of them again. I do not want this series to take too long. There's too many other places in the Bible to preach as well. If we were to take as long with the 66 chapters of Isaiah as we did with the 16 of Romans or the 21 of John, I'll die before I finish. So I'm not going to do that. And second, Isaiah is not as important as Romans and John. Because the New Testament is more important than the Old Testament. It's built on better promises. It's a better covenant. It's a better everything. It has the Lord Jesus Christ as the object instead of Cyrus. Isaiah does see the Lord Jesus Christ, but not as much as we saw him in John. Could we get away from him in the Gospel of John? Never. Because that's the nature of the New Testament. So here we are at Isaiah chapter 2, the theme of the chapter. Jerusalem would be capital of Messiah's future kingdom. But he would destroy the sinners out of it first. That's the theme. The simple outline is an introduction in verse 1, the future glory of Messiah's kingdom in verses 2 through 5, Judah's sins that turned God against them in 6 through 9, terror on those sinners for their pride in verses 10 through 16, 
in verses 17 through 21, terror on sinners for their idolatry. And it concludes with a fabulous verse of Jehovah's total dominion over men. His total sovereignty over men. He is the potter and we are the clay. And that is the nicest thing he could possibly ever say about us because verse 22 doesn't even allow us to be clay. We're nothing. We can't even be accounted for. Cease ye from man. Those that love man, mankind, humankind, that worship the human spirit, Here's what God says about our race. Cease ye from man. Leave him alone. Don't put any trust in him. Don't put any hope in him. Cease ye from man. Get away from him whose breath is in his nostrils. Do you realize that each of you and I are so weak, so fragile, so impotent, that our entire existence depends on God drilling two holes in our face? If God hadn't drilled two holes in our face, we wouldn't even be able to live the next minute. Do you know that that means I can end your life with a clothespin? You can end my life with a clothespin. This is what the Bible says about us. Whose breath is in his nostrils. You squeeze this, it's all over. Amazing. I love the word of God. That puts us in our place. Whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? How will we make any accounting of the value or power of man? He has none. Especially in comparison to God. Especially in thinking of him as delivering us from God's judgment. Because that's what Isaiah 2 is about. If you love God's glory and majesty... For him to be exalted and man debased, you'll love Isaiah 2. Embrace the severe praise of God and his ridicule of sinners to realize that most of today's preachers are clueless. This is the God of the Bible. Do not allow effeminate images by men to enter your mind. That senile grandpa that Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is not God. That is a perverse, pagan, profane imagination of God. The God of Pope Frank and Joel Osteen is not even close to God of the Bible. The Almighty Jehovah that we've already introduced ourselves to. We do not need to wait to Isaiah 6 to get a vision of God. We can get a vision of God right now in Isaiah chapter 2. I hope you, I already gave you a vision of God in Nahum chapter 1 and Amos chapter 4. If you ever think for a minute that men, politicians, or nations, or military leaders get away with sin, return here to read Isaiah 2 from time to time. They do not get away with it. If you love the kingdom of God and its glory when Gentiles were brought in, you'll love the chapter. Think back to our detailed study of Paul's preaching trips and how he turned the world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace the majestic language that's going to be used for our church and the gospel era of the New Testament. Flush the United Nations and their corruption of Isaiah 2.4. There's a statue outside the United Nations in New York City, and it has Isaiah 2.4 on it 
chapter 2 and verse 4, they don't have a clue about it. They get no closer to the understanding of Isaiah 2.4 and the truth of the gospel than devil worshipers. It was a gift from the Soviet Union. God has visited planet Earth and set up a kingdom that will destroy all kingdoms. If you ever think for a minute that serving Jesus Christ is boring, you do not know him. You've never met him. And I'm sorry for you. If you've truly repented and submitted to him, then Isaiah chapter 2 is wonderful. Verse 1. It's the introduction to the lesson that extends from chapter 2 through chapter 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we know it's still Isaiah seeing what God wanted him to see, and that it was about Judah and Jerusalem. So it's about Judah, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple of God was that Solomon had built with David's fundraising efforts. The repetition here from Isaiah 1.1 indicates a new lesson. Isaiah early on warned Judah and Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar was coming. See, we saw that in chapter 1. Chapter 1 said, My ordinary chastening of you with Shishak, with Pekah, son of Remaliah, with the Israelites, with the Syrians, with the Edomites, that's not, gonna, that's not good enough. I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And they're going to destroy this place. And I will take you captive into Babylon for 70 years. You didn't like my Sabbath days. I will cause the land to rest for 70 years because you didn't want to give me one-seventh of your week. And so the Babylonian captivity runs for 70 years, and the day that it ends, Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks of years began to run of 490 years that took us to Messiah the Prince, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the servant of Isaiah the prophet. And so we have a reminder here that we're going to get an extended view now of judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 1 told us that Nebuchadnezzar, didn't say Nebuchadnezzar, but that was implied. The ordinary chastening is not working. I'm going to bring severe trouble on this nation and on this city. Let's go to verses 2 through 5. The future glory of Messiah's kingdom. This is how Isaiah writes. This is how other prophets write. In the middle of a condemnation for sin, in the middle of dealing with something else, up will pop a promise of the gospel. Up will pop a promise of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Up will pop a promise of us Gentiles worshiping. And so here let me read to you verses 2 through 5. They are wonderful verses. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations 
and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. amen and amen. It shall come to pass in the last days. Thank you, blessed God, for showing us the truth of your scriptures against the Zionism of the Jew lovers that do not understand the Bible. It is such a travesty that these wonderful promises are reduced to nothing. Absolutely nothing. If the capital of a kingdom is going to be Jerusalem in that wasteland called Israel, that little stretch of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, then it is no kingdom at all. If it's going to be an earthly throne for poor Jesus, it's no kingdom at all. If it's going to be a restoration of animal sacrifices, like C.I. Schofield and others teach, it is no kingdom at all, it is no gospel at all, it is no better covenant at all, it is worse. It is backsliding and a travesty of the truth of the gospel. These are wonderful verses of promise that took place and have been fulfilled for 2,000 years already. And we know that. But you cannot be waylaid by these verses. Some of us were raised in a system of religion, of dispensationalism, and a future millennial kingdom of the Jews, where they could have their altar again and offer animal sacrifices, and the Lord has saved us from that. And let me show you. But let, I want you to be familiar with the verses. And right now it's verse 2. It shall come to pass in the last days. The last days are the times of the gospel. Because that's how the Bible uses those words. The apostles lived in the last days. We're alive in the last days. In the last days, perilous times shall come. And so forth. It shall come to pass in the last days. For those of you that are interested in seeing the prophets line up with each other, Micah has the very same words. Remember Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, one of the minor prophets that was preaching at the same time. So in Micah chapter 4, he uses the same language in about five verses. It's just beautiful to see them uh, preaching the same thing. The last days are the final phase of God's kingdom as Gentiles become the majority. We know last days of the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ understood after the day of Pentecost. When Jacob used last days for the first time in the Bible in Genesis 49, he was prophesying of Jesus' reign through his fourth son named Judah because when Shiloh came, the, the scepter that had been part of Judah, Judah had been the tribe of the rulers of the sons of Jacob, would be fulfilled. Even, even Jacob knew that the last days were about the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle, called, the apostle called them the last days. When we go to the prophets, when we go to these 17 books of the Bible, and when we go to the book of Revelation, and when we go to God's prophets preaching, we must remember a lesson that they gave us. And uh, you need to turn to Hosea chapter 12 so that you can see this interpretation lesson or this lesson of Bible hermeneutics. 
on how to study prophets because they spoke in a particular way that makes it a little trickier for us, but the Lord did it so that those that want to believe Jewish fables will have enough rope to hang themselves. That's, that's why, that's one of the reasons he did it. The Lord is the author of confusion. Amen. He confounded men at the Tower of Babel, and he has confounded men ever since. He stops up ears and shuts up eyes. He sends strong delusion that men should believe a lie, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And one of the ways that confuses men is the way the Bible is written by the prophets. But here's what the prophets say. In Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10, God said, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Prophets used similitudes. Similitude is a long word for simile. A simile is a comparison that uses the words like or as to make a comparison. So it is not literal language. Prophets do not speak literally. Number one rule of Bible interpretation by C.I. Schofield, always take it literally. The Bible says don't take it literally because it's similitudes. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 says, that the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass, and sent and signified it. Signified it by his servant John. So we have the word similitude, which is based on similes, comparisons. He is strong as a horse. That's got the word as in it. So if you start thinking about horses, you're going to get in trouble because we're talking about someone, some person, some man. And, and signification means that God has used signs instead of literal language. He signified it by his angel to his servant John. The book of Revelation is a book of symbols. It's not to be understood literally. And these poor people get into the book of Revelation and try to make everything literal. They'll get airplanes in there. They'll get tanks in there. I've seen that stuff since I was a little boy. And my father let me get into porn. The porn was books written by Hal Lindsey. Sorry, I didn't mean to waylay you there. I looked at all those cartoons and stuff of what was coming. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. He told us that the prophets used similitudes. Right. So Isaiah when he makes some statements like we have right here in 2 through 5 about a mountain being exalted above other mountains, he doesn't mean that literally. That's, a, that's symbolism. For the little mountain called Zion and the little mountain called Moriah, two of the seven mountains of Jerusalem, being exalted and being the center of the earth. Because this is where all nations and all people would go to worship the God of glory. And it's spiritual Jerusalem. Jesus Christ left earthly Jerusalem in Matthew 23, and he left that temple in Matthew 23, right. never to return to it. And he said, behold, your, your house. When he started his ministry, he called it, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. 
he called it my father's house. But when he left it, he called it your house. Behold, I leave, left your house desolate. Right. And he desolated that nation. Let's go to the Bible to uh, two or three or four passages. I wish we did not have to turn. But I have to keep you established in the truth that these verses I just read to you, two through five, these verses are a description of the gospel era of the Lord Jesus Christ and the conversion of Gentiles and the setting up of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in this earth where the local churches of Jesus Christ are the outposts of that kingdom because that is what the New Testament teaches. Now, men that love Jewish fables will come back here and want to make that literal. And they'll want to see some mountain, you know, growing up and just getting higher and higher until poor little Zion, which isn't very big at all, is bigger than Mount Everest. Because they're all messed up with literalism, though we were told similitudes and significations. Let's go over to, to uh, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And the wise among you should know where I'm turning and where I might turn next. Acts chapter 15. What do we have going on in Acts chapter 15? We have the council at Jerusalem. What's the council at Jerusalem being held for? What's this big church council that justified God putting a chapter about it in the Bible? What, what's the event? What's the occurrence? The occurrence is Gentiles are being converted. That's people like you and me are believing on Jesus Christ and the Pharisees do not like it because they, they can't stand people that aren't circumcised. So they are going out and saying, convert, converted Pharisees. Converted Pharisees are going out and teaching that the converted Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas come down 300 miles from their home church at Antioch of Syria to Jerusalem to ask the apostles about it. And so a council is pulled together. Peter gets up and says, listen, it all started with me when I preached to the household of Cornelius. And he showed God's divine stamp of approval on that Gentile family and others being converted. Then Paul and Barnabas explained what God had done through them. And that's in verses 12, verse 12. And then James, a lead apostle at the church in Jerusalem, summarizes this way. And after they had held their peace, after Peter was quiet, Paul and Barnabas were quiet, James answered, saying, and this is one huge counsel. This is all the apostles and elders of the New Testament church. Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that's Peter, and that's he's talking about the event with Cornelius. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets. He'll quote one. He's going to quote one. But this is what the prophets talked about. Gentile conversions. To this agree the words of the prophet, as it is written, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God, are all his works from the beginning of the world." And so James just summarizes the whole thing. You men should not be surprised by the household of Cornelius being converted. You should not be surprised that Paul and Barnabas have found so much success among the Gentiles and 
many of them being converted. This is the fulfillment of what the prophets told us. And do you know where one of those prophecies was? Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, because it mentions Gentiles, nations, and many people flowing to Jerusalem because they all wanted to hear from the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the transition of Jerusalem was taking place right now because this is the time of reformation. As Paul preached in Hebrews chapter 9, this was the 40 years of reformation, the old covenant being reformed to the new covenant, the old Jerusalem being deserted, then desolated, because we have a new Jerusalem, and it is spiritual Jerusalem, which is above, which is the mother of us all, Jews and Gentiles alike. Thank you, blessed God, for Acts 15. Amen. I love it Amen. when uh, those that do not want to understand or are not able to understand look at verse 16 and say, but it's in the future tense. Acts 15, 16. It's in the future tense, preacher. After this, I will return. This means after the United Nations sends up their cyclops with a glowing 666 in his forehead is what it means. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will. Look at the future tense. There's four future tense verbs in verse 16. But when you go back to Amos chapter 9 and verse 10 where that comes from, the future tense is the future tense of Amos in 700 B.C. It's not future tense to James because James says it is now present tense. It's happening right now, but he quoted Amos accurately by using the future tense of Amos. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12. We shouldn't need much here. On these first verses, Lord, help everyone to understand, to see the glory of your messianic kingdom. And that the son of David was put on his throne when he ascended up into heaven and was crowned with glory and honor in your presence when he took the book of the everlasting covenant out of your hand and sat down and you gave him the rod of iron rule and every, over, every overcomer gets to sit with him in his throne and is given that rod of iron rule as well. Why do you think the globe has no empires but 330 nations? because it's been dashed in pieces by the kingdom that's destroying the world, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It turned the world upside down, according to our enemies in the book of Acts. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews, what does the word mean? Can I give it a one-word synonym? Jews. Paul's writing Jews. Hebrews. When Paul wrote Jews, what did he offer them? a future kingdom on earth where we would be the water bearers and the wood cutters? No. Here's what he offered them. This is when Paul, and Paul knew more about the kingdom of God than anyone else, because Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that. Here's what he, here's what he offered them. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now this is important. Did we have Mount Zion back there in Isaiah 2, 2 through 5? Did we have it back there? Okay. You've come to Mount Zion. Well, now listen. Anybody that went to Jerusalem 
was on Mount Zion and Mount Moriah because you couldn't get into Jerusalem without getting onto Mount Zion because Jerusalem was Mount Zion. Mount Zion was Jerusalem. So what does this mean? There's a spiritual Zion and there's a spiritual Jerusalem. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the, the, the earthly? No, the heavenly Jerusalem. They, 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote Jews, he did not tell them to be excited about earthly Jerusalem. He did not tell them there would be a restoration of earthly Jerusalem. He told them, ye are come. You're already there in a spiritual Jerusalem. Because the spiritual is far more important than the physical. Ye are come unto Mount Zion. And a, a mount, it's a mountain. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. Ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And listen to this description of the kingdom that we're a part of. And to an innumerable company of angels. That means there's so many angels they can't be numbered. To the general assembly, yes, you're part of a mega church this morning. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Where's the membership rolls of this church? The book of life. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. That is what Paul gave Jews right there. The spiritual fulfillment of a spiritual kingdom of the gospel era of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 15, the Jews stood up. James was a Jew and stood up and said, this conversion of Gentiles is fulfilling what the prophets said about rebuilding the kingdom of David. We are members of the kingdom of David. David's son is sitting on his throne and is our king. The son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our king. He's been the king of a kingdom for 2,000 years. This church is an outpost of that kingdom. There are other outposts of that kingdom around the world. We have changed the nations because of the influence of Christianity. More on that in a moment. There's so many more verses that could be looked at by Paul's perspective on these things. Paul's perspective was better than anyone else's. Before I leave Hebrews, though, let's get what Paul said to Jews. This is Paul to Jews. This is as good as it gets, brethren. Do you know what he says as this goes on? Just a few more verses. This is the last kingdom. There is no other kingdom. You say, does it really say that there? Verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. That you are in the final kingdom right now. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Paul's just pulling, that's Deuteronomy in verse 29. He's pulling everything together and showing these Jews, we have the fulfillment of everything God ever promised. We have the son of David on his throne. We have better promises, a better covenant, better blood, better sprinkling. We have eternal salvation. We have the rest promised for the people of God in Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath wasn't a real rest. Canaan wasn't a real rest. We have the real rest. It's just powerful by Paul. Look at chapter, let's back, well, let's go ahead to, to chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 13. 
And I want verse 14. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Look what Paul said about Jerusalem. Two Jews. Jerusalem on earth is not God's city. Heavenly Jerusalem is God's city. And we're looking forward to being in the most real aspect of that when we're in heaven. Come back to 11. Abraham. When all the promises made to Abraham, what city was he looking for? Verse 16, now they desire a better country. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not want the sand wasteland at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. They want a heavenly country. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Verse 10, Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Earthly Jerusalem wasn't built by God. Earthly Jerusalem was built by the Jebusites. Joab and David took it from the Jebusites. It was called Jebus. There is another Jerusalem that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob looked for. And we're members of it. Back to Isaiah. There's many other places that we could go to. and We've been to them before. I just want you to look at those verses. And now let's just, let me, let me just comment on them briefly so that we can move into the rest of this passage. Notice that Paul said, you're coming to Mount Zion. He called it a mountain. We're not in a mountain right now. I mean, I guess we could move to top of Paris Mountain. That wouldn't be much of a mountain. You know, what mountain are we on right now? We're on the spiritual Mount Zion that the Bible's always intended, even from the days of Abraham. And the city of Jerusalem? It's the spiritual city of Jerusalem. It's the heavenly city of Jerusalem. You say, well, it's, it's not really a city. God calls it a city. Is that not good enough for you? He's using a similitude. Remember a similitude? If I say he's as strong as a horse, am I really wanting to get off on a discussion about horses? Or am I saying he's strong? If I say that the New Testament church and the New Testament kingdom can be called Mount Zion, do you want to get off in some geographics, ge geography study of Mount Zion over there in Israel? Or are you realizing that God's using symbols from Old Testament worship and exalting them above all other mountains until it changes the earth. Watch. It shall come to pass in the last days. This is after the exile and return from Babylon, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Is, the church, is, is a Baptist church the house of God? In the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. When did all nations begin flowing to the church of Jesus Christ? In the days of the apostles, which is what I just showed you in Acts 15 with the council at Jerusalem. Right. And many people, that's, those aren't Jews, these are other kinds of people, Gentiles. Many people shall go and say, come ye. And let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. Did a man of Macedonia say to the Apostle Paul in a vision, come over into Macedonia and help us. 
And so Paul realized that God was calling him to leave Asia. And he went into Europe to preach the gospel in Greece. And he kept going west. And so we have the gospel ourselves here in the west. Thank you, Lord. And yes, Titus was in Dalmatia. We love thinking about you guys. When we get to the travels of Paul, you've been to places where Paul was and we haven't. We can just read about it. Many people shall go and say, let's go learn the true religion. He'll teach us his ways. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What went out of Jerusalem? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth 2,000 years ago. And you go to Acts chapter 13, when Paul preached his first sermon that's recorded in the Bible in Antioch of Pisidia, across the Mediterranean, modern-day Turkey, when Paul preached his first sermon, the next Sabbath day, the whole city came to hear him of Gentiles, and the Jews were envious because all the Gentiles had come to hear this man preach that Messiah was already on his throne. And it says the Gentiles rejoiced when they heard it. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Tremendous conversions. Just like this is describing. They came, the whole city came together to hear whatever Paul would tell them. Cornelius of the Italian band. The minute he met Peter, I was told by an angel to go get you. And now that you're here, you've done well. But we are all here present to hear whatsoever God hath commanded you for us. Exact fulfillment. Tremendous. And he shall... The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the gospel went out of Jerusalem, and for 40 years the two covenants ran side by side from 30 A.D., when Jesus Christ died, rose again, went into heaven until 70 A.D. when Titus and the Roman legions leveled that city to the ground and you couldn't even tell it had ever been inhabited according to eyewitness accounts. And that city was over, completely over. And now the Gentiles and the Jews were in local churches, part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That isn't describing universal peace. You say, it sounds like universal peace. That's what happens to those that believe in Jewish fables. Because it sounds like it. We don't want the sound of a verse. We want the sense of a verse. This is talking about Gentile conversions. Was there a peaceful influence on the world because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because of the Prince of Peace. Why didn't Elizabeth and those that were with her take up arms against the Catholic Church? Because the Prince of Peace called us to live peacefully in this world. As much as, here's his order from our King. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Look at this church. Do we have different nationalities here? Ethnicities? Backgrounds of all kinds? Do we all love each other? Beautiful. The wolf with the lamb. 
is sitting in the church of Greenville. I'll be the wolf, comes naturally, and you're the lamb. But here we are. The Lord's brought us all together. Just beautiful. You know, Soviet Union, United Nations, pulls verse 4 out, slams it on a statue, think that the United Nations is accomplishing that. Uh, they look, they're looking for universal peace, but has there been universal peace the way they define it? Not even close. But has Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, brought peace and good tidings on earth? And we're, all, we're blood brothers. The Apostle Paul was warmly embraced. The Jews were despised in the world, but the Apostle Paul was warmly embraced by Gentiles wherever he went. Remember when he was in Italy, going up the boot of Italy, and they came as far, far as Appia Forum and the three taverns to meet him, and he was encouraged? Do good to all. Here's another order from our king. Do good to all men, especially they of the household of faith. Who are the most, pe the most peaceful nations? Are the most Christian nations. You know, today it's hard to find a very Christian nation, so it's hard to find a lot of peace. But everyone, everyone wanted to come to America, and everyone wants to come to America because it's a great peaceful place to live because it has been a Christian nation. There's so much more that could be said, but we have a lot of ground to cover in just a few minutes. So let's go with the rest of this. Chapter 2, we covered the comfort that is going to come in the last days. That was way in the future. In Isaiah 2, 3, and 4, Isaiah has a 700-year view of world history. He's looking ahead 700 years because he's in 700, 650 B.C. So he's looking ahead and he's seeing the conversion of the Gentiles and all the nations flowing to the kingdom of God's house and God's worship. Okay, so he, so he, he sees that mountaintop way out there, but there's another mountaintop in between that he introduced in chapter 1, and that's the captivity in Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar coming. And so now he turns right his attention right back, as he is so prone to do, he turns his attention back to what are the sins of these people in front of me and what is God going to do to them before the last days. Are you with This is chapter 2. He's going to list their sins, and then he's going to tell them of the terror he's going to bring on them. Because notice the offer he made in verse 5. O house of Jacob, come ye, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Why do I have to tell you about all nations flowing to Mount Zion and flowing to Jerusalem? What about you? What about you? The message went to you first. I'm bringing it. House of Jacob. Therefore, because this message doesn't find any lodging place with you, therefore, because you want to have your little pet sins, I will crush you in the day of the Lord. Here we go. Verses 6 through 9. There is much more that was not said that is in an outline that will be posted in the next 24 hours. Verses 6 through 9, Judah's sins that turned God against them. Therefore, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. Notice Isaiah is telling his audience that God, the God of the great blessings of 2 through 5, had forsaken 
the house of Jacob because they didn't want that spiritual blessing of pure worship, of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. Three reasons given here. Number one, because they be replenished from the east. Their religion is made up of a, of a bunch of eastern religions, of the Assyrians, the Persians, and the Babylonians. And you can find evidence of it throughout the prophets. They looked to the east for their religions. Prognosticators and sorcery and witchcraft. So that, number two, they have become soothsayers like the Philistines, which were identified as a local nation that practiced witchcraft. And three, they pleased themselves by marrying the children of pagan strangers. They pleased themselves in the children of strangers. They are intermarrying with pagans. They've become soothsayers like the Philistines because they've embraced the religions of the East. Their land also, here's, a, here's more, further sins. Their land also is full of silver and gold. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, there was great prosperity. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. So they have put a great deal of emphasis on financial prosperity and military strength. In verse 7, they've got religious problems in 6, affinity problems in 6 of marrying the wrong people. They've got prosperity and military problems in 7, verse 8. Their land also is full of idols. They've got a problem with idolatry. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down. That's the average person, low-class men. Mean, in arithmetic, means the average. And the great man, rich man, successful man, landlord, humbleth himself down to these idols. Look at this preacher. Look at this preacher in his words. Therefore, forgive them not. Therefore, forgive them not. Sometimes when things come out of my mouth that you think are too harsh, remember Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Therefore, thou hast forsaken them, don't forgive them. Two Fs. Thou hast forsaken them, don't forgive them, because of those kind of sins in the face of these kind of promises. Because with these kind of promises, we should be wanting to serve the Lord. And so there's the list of sins. Now the terror that's going to come from the Lord in verse 10 because of their pride. Terror on sinners for their pride. Here's the prophet. Here's how he preached. And he's mocking them. Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. And upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all pleasant pictures. So in verses 10 through 16, we have seven verses of the terror God is going to bring on the sinners of Judah, the Jewish sinners, 
for their arrogance, their pride, their conceit, and their haughty living. We had the sins listed in verses 6 through 9 of religious problems in 6, financial and military confidence in verse 7, idolatry in 8, and that all classes of society were worshiping those idols in verse 9. That's a list of the sins. Now, this particular thing he's going after now, you are living that way, contrary to my form of religion, though I made you the offer of verses 2 through 5. And that offer is made all the way from the beginning of the Bible. See, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob promised Isaiah 2 in, uh, in Genesis 49. Balaam promised it in his prophecies about Israel. It's been known all the way through. God told Moses to tell Israel, you know, they don't want to worship me. They want some man to come between me and them. Well, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, and uh, he'll speak to them. Jesus Christ was in Deuteronomy 18. What does it take to worship idols and to take confidence in finances and military strength against the God of glory when you've been taught all about him? It is arrogance. It is pride. And so what is the word of the Lord? Go try to hide from me. Go try to find a cave that will protect you from me. Why don't you try going underground and see if you can be saved from me? For fear of the Lord, and this isn't the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. This is the fear of the Lord of terror on these people. And for the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake terribly the earth and to crush all the arrogance of the Jews that rebelled against him. The lofty looks of man are going to be brought down. Haughty men are going to be bowed down. There's going to be one exalted in that day. God could not stand the fact that they would give honor to a little graven image, to something they made with their fingers and made with their hands. When he is the God of glory, he created them. He couldn't stand it. And so the arrogance of it and the haughtiness of it that they thought that they could make something that they wanted to put on their shelf and on the mantle over their fireplace and bow to and put food in front of it as an idol. And the arrogance of the thought, the glory of his majesty is his jealousy for his sovereign power. And he was going to crush them with it. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon every one of them in verse 12. The cedars of Lebanon were glorious trees, and so were the oaks of Bashan. And these men were high and lifted up and haughty in their religious ideas, like these trees were among the trees of the forest. And so with the high hills in verse 14, their similitudes, their similitudes, their similes, their metaphors for the men, the wicked men. And upon every high tower, they thought their fenced cities could protect them from God's vengeance. Their fenced cities didn't protect them from Sennacherib, didn't protect them from the ten tribes, didn't protect them from Syria, and it wouldn't protect them from Nebuchadnezzar. And upon all the ships of Tarshish, they had navies to go get them cash and gold and silver from Tarshish so that they could hire foreign armies. Listen, the Lord is just going right down through the list of where they put their confidence. Do you ever, re ever read about Jehoshaphat once wanting to get involved with a Ahab and build navies to go to Tarshish to bring, bring, bring riches and the Lord wrecked that navy 
Well, here's another example of it. And upon all the ships of Tarshish, there is going to be no rescue for you by the navy of Tarshish. And upon all pleasant pictures, that is decorative decor of their houses and fancy things that they delighted in that were of great value that they took confidence in because they had beautiful homes with wall hangings of riches, decorative collectibles. He's just listing... Listen, you know, you know in Isaiah chapter 3, is he going to go through most things that a woman wears? Mm -hmm. he, he, can get, he can build a pretty long list, and he's building one right here. And so it ends with, and pleasant pictures of collectible items in their homes. He runs, he runs the gamut from verse 6 down through verse 16 of their sins, but he is going to bring them down for the glory of his majesty. Majesty is the sovereign reign of a king. And glory is the jealousy that he has for that authority. And the glory of his majesty, he's going to crush them. Verse 17, we come to the next section. Here in its terror on sinners for their idolatry. Now he focuses on their idolatry. In this section, he has focused on their lofty looks. In verse 11, the lofty looks, the haughtiness shall be bowed down. In verse 12, upon everyone that is proud and lofty, upon everyone that is lifted up, he can't stand any arrogance. Are we all willing to be servants of each other? Servants. Servants of servants. No one in here should think that they are special. I am your servant. You know what I, I am to you. I am Balaam's transportation to you. Spur me. Now it's idolatry. Verse 17, And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. That's the same as verse 11. But it's going to have a different list following it of their sins. It's still arrogance. But it's arrogance that's been transferred to idols. Verse 18, And the idols he shall utterly abolish. God will utterly abolish idols. They didn't need to melt on the mantle. All that needed to happen was Nebuchadnezzar enters the city of Jerusalem and takes the city, and they know that that little god on the mantle didn't do them any good. He will abolish idolatry by crushing all those that trusted in another god except him. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks. Now it's they shall go. See, back there in verse 10, it was... Why don't you go into the rocks? Why don't you try to hide? And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and in the caves of the earth. They're going to be looking for safety anywhere they can find it. Jesus spoke this very same language about the destruction of Jerusalem when he was on the way to Calvary and the women said, were weeping for him. And he said, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because a day is coming very soon when they're going to beg for the mountains to fall on them. And John uses the very same language in Revelation chapter 6. When Jesus Christ comes to judge this earth, they're going to be begging for the mountains to fall on them. This is prophetic, symbolic language. Nobody's going to say, Mount Everest, please drop on me. It's symbolic. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty. This is three times when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. 
and this arising to shake terribly the earth is what Isaiah saw in 650 BC, and it's Nebuchadnezzar coming with the Chaldean army to overthrow the Jews. Their temple will be destroyed. Their city will be destroyed. Most of them will be killed. Their wives will be raped. That is specifically identified and listed, and you'll need that for the second service. Their wives will be raped. Their fields will be plundered. All their assets taken. They will be bound up, and they'll make a 500-mile march to Babylon. When he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. See, literalists, want, want, this is how deep they think. This is how childish they are when they come to a Bible. Oh, wow. He shook the earth. We have so many examples of that language being used for, let's see, how do we use it? Oh, my whole life got shook up today. No, you probably had two bad events and they were both small. And you said, the, whole, the world got turned upside down. No, it didn't. Why do people say that? It's a figure of speech. This is a figure of speech. When he arises to shake terribly the earth, it's going to be Nebuchadnezzar coming to, to kill these idolaters in Judah. In that day, a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. I love that. Moles and bats. This is Isaiah's preaching. This is, this is pulpit manner 101 from Isaiah the preacher. Moles and bats. They're going to throw their idols to the vermin. Vermin that feeds on dead flesh. Carries diseases. Moles and bats. I hope there's no one in here with a mole or a bat for a pet. <laughs> to go into the clefts of the rocks. They're going to throw their gods away and they're going to be running for safety and to the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. God sits back. He says in Psalm 50, because I'm so quiet, you think that I'm like you and that I approve of your sins. But get one thing straight. I am going to tear you in pieces for thinking that about me. It's Psalm 50, the last three verses. And it's right here as well. When he ariseth. God is long-suffering. My brethren, every one of you that can hear my voice right now, God is long-suffering merciful, and patient. If you have been compromising in any part of your life, He has brought you to today so that you can hear Isaiah 2 and repent. If you do not repent, it will be harder to repent the next time and your conviction the next time will probably be less. And when he ariseth in your life, it will be terrible. He knows your worst fears worse than you know them. Better than you know them. Cease ye from man. Don't look to the Egyptians or the Assyrians for help. Don't look anywhere for help. Don't look to those false prophets. Don't look to your parents. Don't look to your husband. Don't look to the priest. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? He, there can't even be a reckoning made for man. There is no defense when God ariseth to shake terribly the earth. 
And Jesus Christ is coming soon to shake terribly the earth and to burn it up. He is going to descend from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a warning to them. It becomes a warning to us. We aren't living then. We're living now. Don't put any trust in man. Don't put any trust in what man puts his trust in. Put your trust only in the Lord. Man can be shut off by closing the two holes, the nostrils, whose breath is in his nostrils. Wherein is he to be accounted of? He is nothing. Men of low degree, surely men of low degree are a lie. Low class men are obviously vanity. This is Psalm 62 and verse 9. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. That is, upper class men that think they're something special, they're a lie because actually they're just like men of low degree. Putting them together in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Psalm 62 and verse 9. Now that's pretty light when you take low class men, upper class men, put them together and put them in the scales and they're lighter than vanity. They go up and vanity, which is nothing, goes down because it's so heavy. That's Psalm 62 and verse 9. Isaiah 40 would put it this way. They are a drop of the bucket, meaning they are the moisture in a bucket that is ignored when you're weighing liquid. They are the dust of the balance. They are dust, the fine dust that is on a balance that is ignored because it cannot affect the measure. In one verse, wherein is he to be accounted of? He is immaterial. He is irrelevant. He is nothing. And I love the God that speaks that way about me. He is everything, and we should give him everything. He has made his son everything, and we should give his son everything. This is Isaiah 2. This is how God's ministers preach This is the great glory and majesty of God. We are in the first five verses. Will you stay in the first five verses by obedience to His New Testament rules? Because He judged churches in the New Testament so that the cemetery at the church at Corinth had stone after stone after stone of disobedient church members. And our Lord is coming. Let's be ready for him. What a great God we worship. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.